guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a great episode for you guys today. I'm super excited about this. Uh, we're going to talk more about some railroads and do some more right. trains and American Western culture and stuff like that. I this think- is part two of the Indomitable Iron Road, our series about the history of railroads. Yes, and we have a very special guest coming on later. I'm excited to introduce him, which I will do after a while. But before we get into the uh, kind of the meat here, what have you got for us? Yeah, two things. First of all, two. be sure to head over to Patreon.com slash Overcrest. Tons of new Patreons this month. Yes, it's awesome. We appreciate it. And hopefully you appreciate what we put out there for you. There's exclusive content each and every month. If you get some of the higher tiers, we send you swag, t-shirts, etc. Someone someone called it the give me the damn shirt tier. Yes. Which I didn't know that that. was the the name of the tier. But yeah, yeah, that's... I think we've got a more formal name for it. (laughs) And you can get prints, which is the only place I sell prints. I don't do it, but if you're a Patreon, I will. All right, guys, sign up for Patreon, support the show. We would really, really appreciate it. And like I always say, if you don't support us, support someone else, give that money. It really helps out the creators in the world. Absolutely. So last week, we explored the origin of the railroad, from the invention of the steam engine itself to the first rail line in Europe. And it really wasn't long after the railroad took stronghold in Europe that the technology made its way across the pond here. However, in America, railroads differed from its European counterparts in many substantial ways. Why? What was the what was the reasoning behind? Well, because you, you think that okay, it is a railroad a, is a railroad, it is right? A box with wheels that goes on a rail. That's it. It's very easy. Why is there variation? Yeah. So I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves or in the weeds because we're still going to go in depth with the technology of the steam engine and the railroads in our next episode, okay. episode okay. three. But what made American trains different? It's really, I want to touch on the philosophical difference. Were they the best trains? Were they just the best? Were they the Obviously, Chris, the bigliest trains (laughs) in the world. Right. Yes, clearly. No, but it's really the philosophy behind railroad and the purpose of it. So, Chris, you brought this amazing book to me, The Railway Journey by Wolfgang Schivelbush, which is an amazing last name. And I wanted to read this short passage that sums up this philosophical difference perfectly. Quote, in Europe, the railroad system facilitated traffic. In America, it created it. That's almost from what I read the whole book. And that is that kind is, of it I, boils down to that. Yeah. And you you actually like highlighted and curated all these parts for me. And that's what I took away from it. Because you have to think the Industrial Revolution had already been started in Europe. Right. Right. And having the railroad was basically just a tool for that. And what the difference is, is that when you look at Europe, which it existed for, if we're thinking uh, since the 15 or what would it be? 1400s, 1500s. We kind of started getting out of the feudal system and doing different things in Europe. And, and England was already teeming with people. Okay. Right. And we're thinking 1890, 1850, early 1900s. Yep. People had only been in America for a couple hundred years and only really, really America since right. the fabled year of 1776. Correct. Right. So it's like within a, the pace of a hundred years, there's there's only so much industry you can build in a hundred years. And only so many babies you can have, right? <laughs> so you're over here on the East Coast. You're in the, the original colonies, all just jammed into the Eastern Coast, up along the seaboard. And to the left, what do you have? You have this vast swath of resources and land that people don't even know what to do with. Right. It is so monumental. We have the opposite problem of England. We have a ton of land 
but nobody to work the land. Right. In England, we have not very much land, but, but a ton but of there's people. people everywhere. <laughs> so many people that their arms are sticking out of graves next to people's houses, as we discussed last week. Yeah. It, is, it was um, an extremely different situation going from America. It's almost polar opposites it as far opposite. as populist in relation to natural resources. And as you alluded to, the specific nature of the Industrial Revolution in America, it began not with manufacturing, but with agriculture and transportation, which right. was the railroad. So the mechanization of transportation was not seen as it is in Europe as a destruction of traditional culture, but as a means of gaining new civilization from basically otherwise worthless because it was inaccessible wilderness. Right. And we didn't go I into this, this. I saw this poster for the Transcontinental Railroad, which we're going to talk about a lot in our in our interview later. Okay. There was a poster that had a picture of the railroad where it was going to go and it said, Millions of new farmland for sale, millions of acres for sale, because it was just imagine, imagine for a second. We're easy to we think about driving around everything. There's people all over the place. There's right. barns. There's agriculture. There's cities. There was nothing. nothing. There was absolutely nothing. It was the wild west. There was absolutely. nothing there. It was come and take it. Yeah, and we didn't go into this a whole lot last week, but Hell, the- a lot of these places weren't even <laughs> states yet. Yeah, you're right. It was territories. It was territories. When the Transcontinental Railroad was done, it was just the Utah Territory. Right. I mean, there was nothing there. There was no government. There was no, just- you couldn't have a state because they didn't even know what was in it. They didn't plot it out. Right. Exactly. So the development of the railroad in Europe was seen by most as an unwelcomed destruction of the current way of life. We mentioned that the canal boats and other means of transporting transporting goods that were replaced by trains, but there was also kind of this fear of how the railroad would destroy existing culture itself. And here in the States, on the other hand, early transportation was based almost exclusively on natural waterways yeah, using was, steamboats. Yeah, just rivers everywhere. There's, right. There, and there are rivers here everywhere. There, that does, does not exist. Let me, yeah, let me read this quote to you. So uh, I was going to say only in the East Coast did there exist any sort of network or, for stagecoaches as far as roadways. But transportation by boat was so ubiquitous that it's actually part of our language. Chris, what is it called when you want to send someone a package? You mail it to them. No, <laughs> you ship it. You because ship it. that is the only way things ever used to get anywhere. There was there was people that wanted to build more canals and dredge them out instead of doing rails. Right. It was that, it was that ubiquitous, as you would say. Right. No other continent on earth affords such an abundance of navigable rivers. Quote, America's great bays, straits, and lakes all contribute to a coherent interior navigation system incomparable to anywhere else. Like the Mississippi River and all the tonnage that in this period of time that went up and down the Mississippi River was more than all of the boats in England combined. I was just going to read that. Yeah, steamboats themselves were so widespread that until the mid-19th century, the tonnage of riverboats in Mississippi and the Ohio rivers alone, just those two rivers was equal to that of the entire British steamship fleet traveling everywhere in and the world is, on the high seas. Mississippi, this isn't a hugely populated area at no, the time. It's not. It's not the East Coast. So that was, of course, until the railroad came along. But before we do, let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, 
apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, and the Petrobox Premium, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. And the most important railroad of the time was the Transcontinental Railroad. And this was a railroad that was going to connect the Central Pacific Railroad from Sacramento and the Union Pacific Railroad from Omaha. So these two lines had already existed before they basically planned to connect them. Kind of, yes, in, in a way. On May 10th, 1869, Union Pacific number 119 and Central Pacific number 60 met head-to-head on Promontory Summit in the Utah Territory. It was there that the last spike would be driven, completing the Transcontinental Railroad. The tie was hammered into is made of polished California laurel, which is like in a like a really hardwood tree. Sure. Um, the, the laurel or the uh, the railroad tie was capped off in silver, and the spike itself that they used was made of solid gold. That's and cool. And it, you can still see it today. It's a solid gold railroad spike. It's in like the Stanford Museum. Okay, so, so they obviously pulled it engraved out. engraved. They obviously pulled that spike out and replaced it with right, a different, right. less uh, it is a little bit stolen-worthy tie. <laughs> yes. Well, think how much that is worth now. No That's kidding. That's a lot of gold. I, back then, I think they said it was worth two or $300, which in 1869 <laughs> is quite a large amount of money. Right. Considering a lot of these people were making a dollar a week. Yeah, you know, working on work on the rail lines, and this was supposed to happen on May eighth instead of May tenth, but there was a bunch of labor disputes, so they had to delay it to May tenth. Um, the tele- telegraph wires, which is you know Morse code telegraph wires, right. um, not really Morse code, but telegraph. You know, you get a letter from the from the guy from the telegraph. You would like, no, it would still be transmitted via Morse code at this and point, and then they transcribe. Yes, it. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, the, they had telegraph wires wrapped around the spike, and they when the sledgehammer transmitted the and a sledgehammer transmitted the impact instantaneously east and west. Oh, in that's San Francisco cool. and New York, wires had been connected to cannons facing outward across the ocean. When the signal from the spike came through, the cannons fired. The world was put on notice. The Transcontinental Railroad was completed, and America was moving to the forefront of the world stage. Now, that is so cool. I had no idea they actually put wires on the yeah, spike they were driving. Yeah, and then shot cannons off. On That's those. awesome. It's pretty rad. Yeah, it's really rad. Now, think about what, what people were doing. How did you get from the East Coast to the West Coast? It was either on a horse. and a Oregon Trail. Or you went through the, the, the Panama Canal. Oh, I suppose. That was it. That was it. That was all you could do. It took like six to eight months to, to, wow. just to cross the country. And then it would end up with the train. It took a week. The wow. night That night, on May 10th, Governor Durkee of the Utah, Utah Territory gave a long speech, really long, but there's really just a single paragraph that stuck out to me. I have great faith in the future, he said. I believe as a nation we cannot go backward, no matter what may be the motives of men. We shall advance in intelligence, refinement, knowledge, and happiness, which is the great ultimatum of human existence. Here we are, comparatively speaking, in a wilderness, But in a few years, cities will spring up on every hand, and the Rocky Mountains will teem with populations of millions who will look back on this day and call the pioneers and the projectors and the builders of the Pacific Railroad blessed. We live in an interesting period of the world history. We are setting a great example. We have a free government and free institutions, and their influence is felt not only in the United States but throughout the world. The struggle through which the republic has just passed shows that we we are capable of self-government and that the rights of all men 
must be respected. That's so how the struggle he's talking about was, of course, the Civil War. Right, because this is almost directly after the Civil War. Construction of this railroad was going on during the latter parts of the Civil War. Wow. It really embodies and salutes the ideological American uh, concept, right? The American dream of right. Of, he basically of says freedom that. And, and 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 independent government and, and independence and uh, prospective exceptionalism. It's easy to speak in platitudes about history, but there are certain things we can pick out that impact impact society and how we live. The invention of the revolver. I'm speaking of like the West, right? The invention <laughs> of the invention of the revolver or lever action uh, rifle. The invention of the car, the steam engine, and in this case, the completion of the Pacific Railroad. I think the Pacific Railroad's moment of, moment of glory was pivotal to America. Its completion exists in the narrow hall reserved for a time in American history that changed everything. So for that reason, I wanted to get an expert on. I got hold of Bob Lettenberger, who knows so much about trains and their history that he has written Jeopardy questions about them. All right. <laughs> More importantly, he's the historical mind at the National Railroad Museum located in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Hello? Is Bob available? You're speaking with him. How's it going, Bob? It's Chris and Jake from the Overcrest Podcast. Well, good evening, gentlemen. Last week, we talked about some of the early days of industrial revolution that fueled the railroad in England. Is there anything, I know you listened to the podcast uh, that we did the other day and probably to make sure that we weren't crazy people, um, <laughs> but was there anything that we got wrong in that other episode? No, no, you guys, you guys did very well and you painted a, a very good picture of, um, of early railroading. And, you know, and I, I think it's a, a scenario as we'll, I think, uncover in our discussion here um, you know, the, the differences between England and Europe and American railroading at the beginning, um, it, was, it was two different territories. Um, there was both a great deal of uh, development to be done on the social side as well as the technical side of things. Um, and so, yeah, you, you guys laid up a beautiful, beautiful foundation. Um, there was one, one thing I wanted to, to take off on, if I could, for just a second. Sure. Um, Chris had, had uh, cited an interview, or not an interview, excuse me, a speech made by Utah Territory Governor Durkee yeah. um, on the night of May 10th. And the governor paints a, a beautiful picture of uh, you know the railroad's going to bring prosperity, and it's you know it's tugging at the soul of our country, and uh, everything will you know move forward beautifully from from here forward and develop the West and that. And money um, will fall from the skies, and and, and the ribbons <laughs> yeah. will come down, and everything will be great. It will be the land of milk and honey. Um, there was another speech that was given that day that really, in many ways, points to the other side of the coin, the scandal that was going to be coming, the scandal that was already brewing surrounding the Transcontinental Railroad, but would also develop along the lines of a lot of other railroads. Um, and I know a little later on here, we'll talk about the, the mountain wedding or the driving of the gold spike at Promontory, but quick to the end of um, that particular ceremony, after the gold spike driving, uh, representatives from both Union Pacific, Central Pacific, uh, various government uh, authorities had all gathered in the private coach of Leland Stanford, uh, former governor of California, president of the Central Pacific Railroad. And the Transcontinental Railroad really was paid for with government subsidies. 
Of course. Well, that's nothing. That's nothing new. (laughs) 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 Nothing's changed. (laughs) Yeah. Newsflash has been going on for 150 years here, you know? (laughs) Um, but the, the, along the way, of course, there were strings attached. There was reports that had to be submitted. There was uh, surveys that had to be completed. There were inspections that had to be done. And as will be discovered shortly after, you know, in, in the subsequent years here after 1869, um, there was a lot of guys who were basically outright white-collar crooks involved in this. Um, is that what Stanford. we call robber barons? <laughs> um, yes, this is the beginning of the robber barons, absolutely. Hmm. Um, Stanford and his cronies on the Central Pacific were amongst the biggest. Uh, and Stanford, in his private car after the celebration of the, the gold spike, began a, a drunken diatribe against the government and against the subsidies that had helped them uh, construct the railroad. And, well, you and already got the, the last spike in. Now you can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, hey, just, you know, pour champagne all over the whole thing and it's, you know, going to come out smelling like roses. But he, um, he went on and on and, and really offended a number of people in his car. Uh, well, there was, there was two men present, Jack and Dan Casement. They were the gentlemen who were in charge of the actual construction crews on the Union Pacific Railroad. Now, Mind you, both of these gentlemen stood maybe a uh, hair over five feet tall, maybe a little bit more. Not a heck of a lot. It must be think. Jake's parents. I was, hey, now, <laughs> hey, I got these guys beat even. <laughs> okay, don't mean to touch a nerve here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and the casements, the casements were incredibly hard workers. Um, Dan had a, had a ferocious temper. And anyway, uh, Dan crawls onto uh, Jack's back and is now parading around inside of Leland Stanford's private car there at Promontory. And um, Dan cries out quite loudly, addressing uh, Stanford, Mr. President of the Central Pacific, if this subsidy has been such a detriment to the building of these roads, I move you, sir, that it be returned to the United States government with our compliments. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the, the, the car breaks out in absolutely uproarious laughter. Stanford is humiliated, um, and that pretty much ends the party. But the, the And, of course, he is, then, because he felt bad about the subsidies, he wrote the government a check oh, and I'm said, I'm sure. sorry. I'm sure. Yeah, I have your money back. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll check his mansion there in Palo Alto, you know. But the, the, the point is, though, that this, well, the governor of Utah Territory is painting this beautiful picture of this land of milk and honey that we're now going to live in. At the same time, you have people who have taken the most amount of money heretofore from the government complaining that they got this and that they're getting rich off it. And, oh, my God, we had to follow some rules in the process. Hmm. But it, it had, was, had it anything was, like this ever existed in terms of subsidies and government funding other than the Civil War before this point? Or was this like the biggest project that the government ever funded? This was the biggest project to date. But the idea of a land-grant subsidy to build railroads um, actually predates the Civil War. Um, in the 1850s, there were land-grant subsidies that were given, um, the first one actually to the Illinois Central Railway, um, but then a lot of the, the Midwestern Granger Railways, the Chicago and Northwestern, the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, um, Northern Pacific Railway, all got land-grant 
uh, subsidies. And when you when you tally up the amount of land that the government gave away, it's something like 130 million acres um, was given to the railroads to support their construction. Listen, 130 million acres, that's like half of Ohio, all of Indiana, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan combined. Wow. Yeah. And this was given, this was given to the railroads to help finance construction. So no, not a new instrument, but this was the Colossus of capers, if you will. So I want to rewind a little bit and, and touch on some of the differences between, um, before we get too deep into, into that vein of thinking, we have the American railroad and we have the English railroad. And from what I can tell, and from what I've read, you have the the rail, especially the cars in England, were built around kind of this mentality that they were coaches, right? Because they built them off of people who are used to riding around in little carriages, little coaches. And the American Railroad was built on the foundation of the steamboat, right? You have these two different, uh, different ways of thinking of building a railroad car and building the railroad. Plus you had, in England, all the railroads went straight to where they were going, right? They, it's just like this vector, the straight line. And in America, everything kind of like curved around and went through nature and was kind of, I read people that said, oh, it's just the symbiotic nature with the railroad. And I think that's probably a lot of propaganda and flowery talk back then. But it was like, we didn't necessarily have to build everything in a straight line. So then all of our cars had to be different. What was the, what was the core reason that the American rail was so much different than the English one? Well, here in, in the U.S., we wanted to use the railroad to connect with steamboats. There was a, a thought of possibly connecting with canals, but the railroad uh, technology and efficiency-wise far outstripped the canal uh, almost from the, the get-go. Um, you look at what we wanted to do here in the U.S. In fact, take, for example, the very first common carrier railroad in the United States, the Baltimore and Ohio. And right there, it, it says it all in their corporate name. Their, their goal was to go from Baltimore, seaport on the Chesapeake in Ohio, and reach uh, or excuse, uh, on the Chesapeake Bay, and they wanted to reach inland to the Ohio River to connect with uh, steamboats there to, of course, then you know, further commerce uh, down to the, the Mississippi. So the, the thought process of what we wanted to do with railroads, um, completely different uh, from England to the United States. The, the next thing was really the, uh, the terrain that we were going through and the distances that we were trying to cover. Uh, you know, today, when you look at railroads today and people say, gee, why can't we have high-speed trains like they have in X name your country? Well, one of the big reasons is look how huge the United States is compared to other countries. And we were trying to cover such vast territories with this new technology. Couple that with the idea that a lot of what we're right now in our discussion, what we're calling new technology, was basically being invented on the fly. And as we found different circumstances, such as, say, going over or through the Appalachian Mountains, as opposed to the terrain that was being faced in England, we needed a whole different set of equipment 
and engineering techniques um, and construction techniques to pull this off. I was uh, I was so, looking that I, from what I can tell, it seems like the English system was built on uh, almost like a permanence. Like we're gonna we're gonna build this and then we're gonna fix it and repair it, and it'll be this uh, this really solid platform that is just going to need to be repaired and maintained. And here everything was kind of built like, okay, we're going to build this and then we're going to come up with some better ideas and we're going to build it again and, and keep advancing the technology. Like there was these diaposing views on what the future would be like for both sides. And, and, and right here, you need to, you need to bear in mind one thought. The discussion can go down one of two tracks we can talk about technology. I see, I see what you did there. Okay. Yep. okay. <laughs> 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 kind of threw the switch on the. You know, we, can, <laughs> we can we can go purely down a technological um, track and look at it and say, okay, you know, when when we're when we're first running um, uh, a line in South Carolina that the best friend of Charleston ran on. And it's basically over relatively flat territory. We don't need that big a locomotive, all right? But now as we start getting across the Appalachians and we want to go faster and, and uh, move heavier trains, okay, we need, to, we need to build a better locomotive, which means we need better track, we need better bridges, so on and so forth, okay? We can look at it from the technological standpoint. The other standpoint, though, that we can look at, which is really what influenced a lot of the decisions in American railroading was the financial and the social um, metric, if you will. Um, railroad investment in the U.S. was pretty much a private enterprise, all right? And yeah, I just mentioned government subsidies, but most government entities were prohibited from, um, how do you say, directly granting here, Go, here's here's a million dollars. Go build me a railroad. Okay, the governments couldn't do that, and so there had to be ways to entice private financiers to do this, and this is where we basically get people who look at this new fad of this new technology and go, "Wow, I can make some huge bucks off of this thing." I or as in England, they would through. call it a scheme. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> yeah, was the, exactly. that was the word. Yep. So, so here in the U.S., this pure capitalistic um, approach really starts to drive the building of railroads because there are people who want to get rich as quick as they possibly can uh, off of building and or operating them. So and, what was the thought? How did you get rich doing this? Like, what was the, did you sell rights to be able to use the line? Or, or how did you, if you were a guy that wanted to go build a railroad and be rich, how was, how, mm -hmm. what was that process like? Well, there was there was kind of twofold. If if you if you played your cards like many of the railroads that got land grants did, you could get rich off of the construction, and then it wouldn't matter if you actually ran the railroad or not. If you could successfully build the railroad, and let's let's take uh, you know take like the Baltimore and Ohio, as they progressed west and were able to show the value of commerce flowing between Baltimore and a river port on the Ohio River, okay, they naturally began to garner traffic. Additionally, as they developed resources along their line, well, now you get more money from 
carrying those goods or carrying the people that are now riding your, you know, your your trains as a passenger train. Let me give you let me give you another example. Um, state of Wisconsin. Before the railroads arrived in the state of Wisconsin, farmers generally produced enough to support themselves, their families, maybe uh, you know a few neighbors around them um, through barter. After the railroads arrived, and not only railroad technology, but agricultural technology advances, now the farmers have themselves in a situation where they can produce more than they themselves can consume. So what do you do? You know, in the backwoods of Wisconsin, there's not a lot of market for extra grain, but Milwaukee, Chicago, Des Moines, Omaha, Indianapolis, um, plenty of extra market. So now we can produce, and now we also have the means to haul. Everybody, in theory, makes more money off of having the railroad there. So it just facilitates prosperity. In, in some ways. In some ways, yes. The argument can also be made here in the U.S. that we built more railroads than we actually needed, which, which we did, um, just for people to get rich off of building them. Right. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's nothing new. I'm sure there's lots of I mean, yeah. golden toilets at the Pentagon, you know. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so exactly. I, when I think of um, the railroad, of course, I, in the in the inception of the railroad here in America, I think about you know the West, right? You think of you think of the the West and the way that it was, you know, all the movies and everything like that, and these little towns. And um, in, first of all, let's what is what do we when we say the West, and we're going to talk about Western history a little bit. What in your mind, what is the West? What makes up the West? If, if we're looking at the time of railroad uh, expansion and construction, let's call the West, say, um, everything that lies west of the Missouri River, um, but east of California and what was Oregon Territory at the time. Uh, so you're, you're basically looking at, um, you know, the Dakotas, what's now the Dakotas, Nebraska, um, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Nevada, um, Utah, that space. Um, because when we, you know, when, when we acquired the land through the Louisiana Purchase, it was like, oh, my God, United States just like, wow, we, <laughs> hold, what's out there? <laughs> what's out there? <laughs> exactly. There was, nobody really even lived out there. There was nothing yeah. there. There wasn't a bunch of yeah. towns. You, you're no, telling me you can't you know, just go on Google Earth and see what's out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, Google Earth and go back to the, you know, the go back to the 1830s and go, you know, <laughs> show me Wyoming. It's like, okay, well, you know, you, you, there's Yellowstone and a bunch of polar bear, not bears, a bunch of black bears running <laughs> around. You know, um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if you look at basically west of the Missouri to. Uh, the Sierra Nevadas, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. what was That's life the, like for these people that were there? These people that well, wanted to live there. What was what was their life like before the railroad came? You're you're looking at say say you're on you're part of a wagon train and you decide that hey I'm I'm going as far as Nebraska or I'm gonna you know settle in Wyoming or uh, you know Utah as as the Mormon faith did. Um, there there's nothing there. Okay, there's nothing there. Um, basically, what you're bringing with you is what you're starting with. And you hopefully have strategized 
um, well enough to have um, food to survive till you can grow or you know hunt. Um, hopefully, you have uh, added up the weight in your wagon properly so that you have brought along um, or have enough capacity to have farm implements along with you. Um, and then you are basically you're basically starting your civilization from square one. Um, you know, here's my here's my land that I'm going to homestead on, and you know the first thing I got to do is uh, build some kind of shelter. Um, if I'm going to be farming, you know, I got to figure out how I'm going to cut the sod and get down to the uh, you know the good fertile earth. Um, so I think know. about all these shows that are on TV where they just chuck somebody out in the wilderness and these guys get there and they're like whittling little dolls like, oh, this is pretty great. But in like two weeks, they're calling for mommy, right? They're like, please, I got my satellite phone. Get me out of here. Bring me the boat. Bring me the helicopter. I want to go home. Watch Netflix. These men, and I, would, I wouldn't even say men because obviously there's a lot of women and children that did this too. Everybody sure. had like this grit, right? They just... You always see in movies and stuff that these these guys were just mean and angry and just dripping with grit. It seems like the West was a <laughs> hard place. It was a hard place to get to, a hard place to survive in. It just seems yeah. like a like a terrible existence. I don't understand why people did this to themselves. What was the mentality that would cause these people to go out there and do this? You had to want it, and you had to want it bad. But at the same time, when you look Wait, hold at on. It, when you say it, what do you mean? When you say you had to want it bad, what are they? What are you talking? What are they about? looking for? What Why they did they do for? this? Yeah. What was the this, intangible? This, this new life, a new life in a new territory where you could you could make it for yourself. All right. Um, you know, when you look at when you look at opportunities in uh, bigger cities that were established. All right there was already this certain grind that people were in. You know, where you were working, uh, you know, 10, 12-hour days, uh, sometimes six days a week, depending what your business was. You might even have to work uh, after church on Sunday. Um, you know, you're, you're probably living uh, some kind of a tenement, maybe if you can afford a small house, um, you know, life, life in the city is, you're in a box already. All right. But here is, this, and it's kind of, you think of today's society, we go oh, city, that can't be that bad, but sanitation and everything was a lot different back then. Oh, incredibly. You know, now here out in the West, we have, we have this opportunity, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's gold that we can chase after in California. Um, you know, maybe the, you know, maybe we can settle down in Nebraska, um, you know, with just acres and acres and acres of farmland. And, and, you know, if it's, it's my empire to lose, if you will. So to go out and grab this new lifestyle, to go out and make it for yourself. I mean, this was, this was almost the ultimate American dream. You know, here's the better, here's the better life just for taking it. Well, the part about taking it was that was the tough part that, you know, it wasn't fully understood a lot of times. Right. And it's what I, th when I think of, of these men going out there and doing this, it's this, I think it's, I think human humanity at its core has a, has a desire to explore and, and seek the unknown. Right. I think as we've got over the last 150 years, there's less and less unknown to us. And I think these types of, of people still exist, but the, 
the reason and the motivation to do something like this is just gone. You know, it's not like you and I can pack up a wagon and go to Mars. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Well, hey, well, Elon Musk has his way. Maybe we'll get out there. But I'm just saying that this, the, the reason and the, and the impetus to go and do this existed. It was the unknown. It was like, well, we don't even know what's out there. We're going to go find it and stick our, our stake in the ground. And some people were paying... I was looking up the to go along the Oregon Trail. If you wanted to hire a coach to do that, it was a thousand dollars, which I think today is twenty thousand dollars. And you just think about scraping up twenty thousand dollars to probably go and die, right? It's, oh. it's just it's it's incredible. And I, I'm imagining these weren't all Americans. I bet I imagine there was immigrants that would come in and attempt to do this stuff. And I don't know what percentage of people didn't make it, but I'm guessing it was probably a lot. It was. I don't have a number right off the top of my head, but it was a, it was a stiff percentage. And and I, and I, I'll tell you this. I uh, for a number of years I lived in Wyoming, and uh, you know both in school and then then otherwise. You know, you the Oregon Trail becomes something you study and you see the historical sites and whatever. You or know, you play the video game. You know, you got the game where you <laughs> shoot the little things and pack all the meat and take nothing but bullets. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and and the one thing that they don't show you in in video game, you know, that you see in reality is, you know, hey, here along the trail, you know, here's where the here's where the ruts were were ground into the stone because so many wagons went by, but they don't show you, you know, a mile up ahead, here is uh here's a mass grave site, um, you know, for you know people who who died in this stretch of the trail. Um, so yeah, I mean, it what was, were some of the dangers that you would encounter? Why are why was it so hard? Other than you know, I'm assuming you would leave at a time of year where you hopefully wouldn't freeze to death. Uh, was it starvation? Yeah. It was dysentery? Fever? What are we dying All from? of the above. All of the above. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Every human condition. You're just... Well, first thing that, you know, when you're talking about the wagon trains west, the, the trick was um, to be prepared and to start off at a time where you would not you you had ample time to travel so that you did not have to rush. The big thing was... It was six or eight months, months, right? I mean, it was a long time. It was about, about six months. Wow. About six months. Yeah. Um, the, you know, you wanted to time your travel so that you made it over the Western Mountains um, before the fall snowfalls came in. Um, reference the Donner Party, okay? Uh, but... You, you also wanted to be able to set a pace for yourself that was not too hard on your animals. Um, you also wanted to set a pace for yourself that would allow you to judiciously use your supplies so that when you did get to the trading posts that were along the way, your supplies were down low enough that you could take on new weight without overloading your, your wagon. Um, right. You know, then then beyond that, you know, water um, with, you know, all the, the inherent problems there, which could lead to dysentery. There was uh, bouts of cholera um, on the trail. Um, yes, there were some attacks by, uh, you know, by Native Americans along the way. Um, just, uh, you know, at that time, the buffalo herd was incredible in the West. And to avoid a stampede um, was somewhat of a challenge as well. Um, if you were, if you didn't listen and and follow the guidance of your your trail masters, you know something uh, something like even fording a river um, could be 
catastrophic um, to your trip. So there was there was any number uh, of catastrophes that you could meet with uh, on a wagon train. Well, even class. if your horse like messes up its hoof or breaks an ankle, you're done. That's yeah. true. You're done. Yeah. That's it. Well, yeah, I mean, and think about that. I mean, it, you know, in a lot of cases, they're the the uh, the wagons are being pulled by oxen. You yeah. know, if you're weighted down and you get an oxen that gets sick and uh, basically it has to become dinner as opposed to horsepower, well, now how much how much do we have to toss off the wagon and, you know, leave along the way? In fact, that was one of the things in the West on all of these trails, uh, you know, if if you could go along and pick up the things that everyone had else had to toss out, man, you could get to California and have it made. Wow. <laughs> so. Oregon Trail Shop by Jake Solber. I just make a really, the- really big wagon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he lived next to that guy that pounded the gold spike, I'm sure. Yeah, there you go. Well, it, yeah, and it, it's, not a, it's not a shop where there's, you know, like 500 locations between St. Joe, Missouri and and uh, you know in Oregon, no, it's just one big store the whole the whole way across. <laughs> it's, it's, so so this my point in talking about this is this mm-hmm. is why the Transcontinental Railroad was so important, right? Because yeah. it, it's just there's there's no other way to connect commerce and human beings across such a huge, vast swath of land. So what was the inception of the Transcontinental Railroad? Where did that start? Who was kind of like, you know what? Screw this. Too many people are, I mean, obviously they probably were like, too many people are dying. We got to build a railroad. It's more like, holy shit, I can make an ass load of money if I build a railroad, <laughs> you know, to, and to get people out there. How did this start? Well, the, the, actually the first, some of the first inceptions of the Transcontinental Railroad, or at least the idea for the Transcontinental Railroad, or I should say a Transcontinental Railroad, because there ended up being many, um, it really starts um, very, very late 1820s, 1830s. Um, it's picking up steam. Um, pardon the pun there. Uh, <laughs> you know, it is into the into the 1840s. There is serious discussion about this. Probably one of the first people who is is given the most credence with a credible idea is a gentleman named Aza Whitney. Um, Whitney uh, published a, a, a memorial or a tribute, if you will, basically a pamphlet discussing his ideas, um, translated today a really long passage on Facebook. Um, and in this, in this memorial, he presented the idea that um, a railroad should probably be built. Um, his idea was actually from somewhere on the shores of uh, the Great Lakes, either Lake Michigan or Lake Superior, um, going west to connect with either California or Oregon. Um, but his vision was uh, more so not opening the west, but was then trade with um the the Pacific Rim countries, okay? Ah. Um, you know, trade for silk, trade for spices, um, things of that nature, to be able to bring those then to the West Coast and then bring them to uh, the re- the rest of the country. Well, that's kind of an old school uh, mentality. That's why they were always trying to find the what is it the Eastern route, right? All the European countries are trying to find a way 
to get around South America to get. Well, the, they didn't know South America existed at the right. time. Well, they're just, they're just trying to find a, a way to go west. Yeah, the East East. Indies. Yeah, the East Indies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they wanted to figure it out because that's. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a ton of money and resources there. Well, and when you look at it, when you look at it that way, you know, across the U.S., land across the U.S. Before we had had you know railroads, we're easily talking um, six seven, maybe even eight months if you have bad luck, all right? Yes, you can cut that down to maybe um, 90 to 120 days if you go across Panama. But remember, you know, we don't have a Panama Canal yet. So in Panama, you have to get off of your ship and you have to uh, hoof it across the isthmus which in and of itself is fraught with as much, if not more, peril than going across the western U.S. I didn't even think you of know, that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 the canal doesn't come in until well after the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, and in fact, if you look at it, the Panamanian Railroad actually was completed um, before the Transcontinental Railroad here in the U.S., which you know, help the situation there, but it was still a perilous journey. So you park your ship, you know, (laughs) corral all your stuff, carry it across the land, put it on another ship, and then away you go. And if you go around the tip of South South America, I mean, which in a lot of cases, um, a lot of the heavy materials that were headed to California had to sail all the way around South America. And that is you know, sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, know, I, I mean, don't want to, I can't even under, <laughs> understate that and overstate that enough, that that is a sketchy trip. Sure. Um, talk to the talk to the folks that own the Central Pacific Railroad and, uh, you know, how much they lost in sinking of, uh, in ships that sank uh, somewhere along the, the, you know, the coast there in the Pacific. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was, when you think about the, the the light years ahead that the completion of the transcontinental railroad moved the united states it's incredible uh six to eight months across when when that spike gets driven on on may 10th 1869 the distance across our country falls to maybe seven to ten days wow that's incredible yeah you know it's just um in fact chris had alluded to it last week that or in your previous uh, uh segment that you know it, it's like the internet today and it is it absolutely 110 percent is so was there a lot of uh corruption going on with the building of this railroad you know i i always hear about you know carnegie and this and this leland guy sounds like <laughs> a big jerk and all these <laughs> robber barons and stuff like that were these were these men abs actually corrupt or were they a product of their time oh my god um well Let's just let's put it this way. Um, you know, just like with today, we still do have criminals, and there are people out there who will do bad things. The difference is, and when you look at a lot of law that we have today, we can see where a lot of it stems from the robber barons and from things that were done um, in railroad construction. All right. Um, when you look at the Central Pacific, there were there was what was called the Big Four. There were basically four people that owned the railroad that controlled it: um, Leland Stanford, 
um, Mark, Hoppen, Mark Hopkins, um, Charlie Crocker, and Collis Huntington. All right, um, they were crooks. They were businessmen. They were out to make every penny they possibly could off of this thing, but they were smart. Um, over on the Union Pacific, the the head scoundrel was a gentleman named um, Thomas Durant. Um, Durant made a ton of money. Um, Durant was crooked as the day is long. Uh, in fact, um, the reason that he didn't get into the Union Pacific uh, very heavily until after the Civil War was that he was making more money um, running cotton illegally uh, in and out of or out of the South during the Civil War. Um, so I mean, he already had one crooked enterprise. Gee, why do I need to have another one? Um, so did the government they, just kind of turn a blind eye when they're giving all these guys these subsidies and stuff? I mean, it can't be a mystery what they're doing. Is it well, kind of it, like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours? If you, no. you know, we'll give you guys. Your daughter has a, a, a built has, has a foundry or something. I was wondering where you're going with that. Well, no, not yet. no, I'm just saying that some guy has a foundry and he makes the rails and we know him and it's all this kind of underhanded stuff. Or was it more blatant than? Oh that? yeah, no, there it was. It was it was all of that. It was all of that. Um, the uh, the you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You know who am I getting my rails from? Where am I getting my locomotives from? Who's cutting my ties? Um, yeah, all of that was was as nepotistic as you could possibly get it. But was it considered part, illegal at the time? All of this stuff? No, that's what was that's what was what makes it so astounding. Um, it it was not. In fact, a lot of the law that we have today that prevents such things stems from just the the actions of these gentlemen. All right. Here, let me let me give you just a cite a, a couple of examples okay. that will will just incredible. Okay, um, we'll go on the we'll go for the guys on the Central Pacific side. The there was the belief that as the transcontinental railroad was being built, that it could not be completed and it could not be operated as a for-profit railroad. Okay, the belief was just there that this was too big a task to ever accomplish by mankind all right so the folks both on the union pacific side durant and then uh the big four on the central pacific side all figured out a way to make money off the construction they didn't care if the railroad was finished that was a bonus that was gravy they made they were making their money off the construction what they did was they set up both sides had a dummy construction company and they would put out uh, say the next next 25 miles of track we're going to put this out to bid and of course you know the, the best bidder gets the gets the project well what they would do is take and um, get the bids look at them and then have a buddy of theirs put in a better bid all right they would give the bid to their buddy who would then turn around and reassign it to the dummy construction company now by time all was said and done the actual work cost far in excess of the bid so they they ended they paid it because basically they were paying the money from to themselves they were just taking it out of one pot these gentlemen controlled the railroads 
So they took the money out of the railroad pot and paid it to themselves in their dummy construction company. They couldn't lose. As long as they kept building, they couldn't lose. Uh, the guys on the Central Pacific, um, Hopkins, Crocker, Stanford, um, were able to cover their tracks um, better than what Durant was <laughs> able to do. In fact, at the end of all this, when Congress... Is that where covering your tracks comes from? You no. got it. You got it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Once... When Congress was investigating all of this after the, the the completion of the railroad, they had called Hopkins, who was the bookkeeper for the Central Pacific, um, in front of uh, the Congressional Committee and said, well, Mr. Hopkins, um, you were here to testify today about the financial workings of the Central Pacific and something called the Contract and Finance Company, their dummy construction company. Um, but I see you don't have the books here for uh, the contract and finance company. Well, where are they? Um, well, they don't exist. Well, sir, what do you mean they don't exist? Well, we were done building the railroad, so I was cleaning out the office and just tossed them in the furnace. They're gone. We didn't need them anymore. We mm -hmm. didn't need them anymore. Well, through a little forensic accounting, if you will, for the time, they they managed to figure out, they being Congress, managed to figure out an estimate that it was literally into the millions of dollars that the guys on the Central Pacific had made off with. But they were so smart about doing it that every time you tried to trace money, they had it so wound up in such a web uh, of mystery that you could never pin pin anything on anybody um and and they basically made off with millions uh scot-free um over on the union pacific side uh not as clean durant was accused he basically skipped town um and you know was was not called to account for it so yeah huge america's scandal. a big place pretty easy to hide i imagine if you're a rich well guy, especially in that time you, can, you just grab a yeah. bag of gold bars and gold railroad ties and hop a ride on the train and <laughs> so there you go get off in montana and disappear that, uh, away we go you know the um the gold spike ceremony was actually supposed to take place on may 8th not may 10th and there's a story around that that leads to some of this, this scandal and money grabbing. Um, there were two things that happened. One, um, in northeast Utah, through Weber and Echo Canyon, the rains had been incredible um, leading up to May 8th, May 10th. And a very hastily built bridge by the Union Pacific over the Weber River had begun to wash out. So the bridge had to be closed. Durant and his party were headed to Promontory to finish the railroad, and when they got to the town of Piedmont um, in the southwest corner of Wyoming, their train was stopped by angry track workers. Um, these guys hadn't been paid for months, uh, yet you know Durant was just lining his pockets. Well, it turned out that, that what they did was they uncoupled Durant's private car from the train, um, pushed it into a siding, chained it in place, <laughs> and basically said, you're not going anywhere until we get um, at least $50,000. 
Uh, Durant wires New York to the home office, says, look, I'm, I'm being held hostage. I need, you know, 50,000 bucks, um, you know, send it, send it on. Uh, eventually, the home office did wire the money, but it turns out that the money was given to a group of tie cutters that worked for a company called Davis and Associates, in which Thomas Durant of the Union Pacific was one of the principal owners. So basically, he wasn't—he was—it wasn't that he wasn't just rooking money from the company. He had to find ways to find to, to rook more money out of the, you know. This is like uh, the biggest <laughs> cookie jar ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and and there's stories like that on both sides that that go up and down the entire construction process. It, it was just, it was scam on top of scandal. Um, Here's the question, though: Could this have happened without it? Would these guys have done this? Would this hmm. would this have gone through? I mean, eventually it probably would have. But at this time, just after the Civil War, would they have been able to build the Transcontinental Railroad without being scheming bastards? Would it have been possible? No, no. From from everything that I have read, my opinion would be uh, it, it would not have. So, what's um, your thought? Is is it? good that they were able to get this done off the backs of i mean i mean because think about think of the benefits for society you know it's kind of like versus this, the morality of these guys and how many yeah what people the, they put out the, of what's your thought you know when you when you look at it i think there's i think there's a couple of ways to look at it did the railroad eventually create good? Yeah, absolutely it did. I mean, it, it opened up the West. It opened up commerce in the West. Um, when you look at the, the, uh, the spin-off inventions, if you will, um, that came about because of, of the railroad um, and its availability, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, was that, it was that technology that had the same effect as the Internet for today. Did we have a lot of scoundrels that made a lot of bucks off of it? Um, absolutely. Um, should there have been more people punished? Realize, realize that out of the whole Transcontinental Railroad scandal, legally, there were only two people that were ever formally legally punished. That was it. That was right. it. Okay. Um, from a legal standpoint, there was more law developed more um, business customs, more uh, morality, if you will, in business ethics in business, if you will, that came out because of that, which uh, obviously made for good. Um, I, you know, I think the other part too is that it, um, when you look at the people, and if if there's a backwards way to justify what they did, um, if you look at some of the people involved. Um, let's take Stanford, okay? Um, we all know his university today. Stanford University, mm. Palo Alto, California, built basically off the money that he made off of building the Central Pacific uh, Railroad. Um, Collis P. Huntington, you go into upstate New York and there is you know, any number of uh, facilities named for Huntington that came from money that uh, that he garnered from the building of the railroad. Um, you know, even one of the guys who got punished, Oakes Ames, who was a congressman from Massachusetts, um, although he was formally censured, 
um, in Congress, and he was guilty of handing out bribes and, and, you know, any number of other shenanigans. You know, he left money, he endowed a library in uh, a town that he frequented in Massachusetts. So I guess in kind of a backhand way, you know, we got the railroad. That was probably a lot of law. guilt right there. All that money was probably, yeah. well. <laughs> like this Thomas Durant guy was, it seems like that dude was a real son of a bitch. I mean, he, oh, at yeah, one yeah. point I read that he recruited Pawnees to stage a mock raid on trains as yep. entertainment for dignitaries uh, riding yep. on part of the 100th Meridian celebration. So we hired oh, a bunch of Indians to, it, as he would call them, to uh, basically attack the train as like a theater type thing. Right. And the, yep. the Pawnees exactly. were... Uh, I guess they were security forces against the Sioux that he hired. So he mm-hmm. put, pitted Native oh. American against Native American. Oh, yeah. Guys just seem like an, like an asshole. And if anybody got the short end of the stick of, of all of this, and I want to talk a little bit about the Chinese and the Irish in a second, but the Native mm-hmm. Americans really kind of suffered at the, the hand of the railroad as well, right? You, you look back through that, that period, you know, the, the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, and if you... If you if you ever want to sit down and and I mean take a month to dig into it, if you look at all just look at just the treaties of Fort Laramie with the with the Native Americans, and it you know it is one it is one push after another, one basically falsehood after another, pushing the the Native Americans off of their territory, off of their, you know, their, their native lands. Um, and it's all in the name of, of progress um, in a lot of ways, you know, first off of the, the trails and then off of the, the railroad. Um, so, yeah, there, there was, you know, there was as much as there was social good, there was also social damage, uh, if you will, with the buildings of the, the railroads in the West. Well, that's, the, that's the human condition throughout all of human society. I think is that there's there's good and bad to progress at all times, and some of it is macabre. You know, it's just it's yeah. our, it's who. Unfortunately, it's who we are as human beings. I think I don't think everybody's a bad person, but I mean, this just <laughs> no. seems to happen repeatedly over the course of human history. Yeah, you know, my I want my idea to win out, and right. I either have the the money or the muscle to to make it happen. And the ends justify the means for them, right? They they say, yeah. well, this is going to be good, so. I mean, politicians to this day do this all the time where they True. say, well, I'm, I want this. I think this is going to be the best for people, and they'll do almost whatever it takes to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, when you, when you look at this, and, and that, that's kind of the big picture, and you look at a guy like Durant, and, you know, it's, it's very easy to, to pile on to a scoundrel like him, which, I, I, you know, in my opinion, yeah, I mean, he was a scoundrel. Um, you know that besides the... Uh, the mock Indian attack there for the 100th Meridian celebration. Um, he also um, had the prairie lit on fire um, so that his, uh, his guests could watch this huge conflagration um, at night. Um, they also took and uh, ran the train, uh, a train so that the gentleman could um, shoot, hunt buffalo, um, out of the train windows as it was going along, and they basically just shot the buffalo and left them lay uh, on the prairie to rot. Can you imagine wow. what the Native Americans so, that thought of that? Yeah, oh I mean, my. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's like yeah, I mean exactly. So it's for them to stand and watch and go, you know, first off, you're 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 burning the native grasslands that we live in and that the buffalo need 
to graze upon that we use for food and for clothing and you guys are, are just here killing these for recreation, you know, with no care or concern. Well, it's no surprise that you know? the Sioux were angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research-tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof, two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on oberkcarcare.com, but also on detailedimage.com and carsupplieswarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. So the Union Pacific was built east to west, relying on immigrant, uh, Irish immigrants, and the western line, the Central Pacific, was a lot of Chinese labor. Now, what was, why was it this uh, immigrant labor that was used? What were the conditions like? Why, why not just use regular Americans? Would they not do it? What was the reason behind all this? You, you hit it right on the head. They would not do it. Um, it was that bad then. It was it was atrocious. The conditions, the well, it was not only the condition that the conditions were tough. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say bad because it was a legitimate job for the time after the Civil War. Um, but it was a uh, there might there might have been a better job to be had. Um, so you know, yeah, the Union Union Pacific. Um, about 12,000 workers um, at the peak. Um, yeah, you're right, mostly Irish. Um, there was a fair, a fair number, and, and by fair number, um, you know, several, several hundred African Americans, uh, a lot of freed slaves um, mixed in with that. Why was, what was uh, it with the Irish that they were well, doing this? Is there something? They were, they were used to that type of tough labor. Um, you know, you think about a lot of the Irish coming over there, they're used to, uh, you know, either shipbuilding or mining, uh, you know, endeavors of that nature. And so this was just, it was an opportunity that was there for work that they understood um, that they could do. Plus, the other thing was, uh, remember, they're immigrants. And uh, when you think about the United States, really founded, if you will, by Englishmen. Um, you know, we've got that friction with the Irish already. So, uh, hey, well, let's let them go out and do the grunt work of building the railroad. And the West didn't uh, really like the, the Chinese very much either. Well, yeah, on the, on the Western side, on the, on the Central Pacific side of things, um, about 10, 11,000 workers. And now the, the problem they had, and understand, the understanding of why they went to uh, the Chinese is kind of interesting. Um, there was a good deal of, of Irishmen and, you know, other nationalities um, that were mingling in California at the time, but they were out there to get rich quick mining gold. Well, the problem that the Central Pacific had was that they would get a crew of Irishmen who would take and work for a couple of weeks, make their pay, and then they would disappear and they'd find them in the, in the gold fields. <laughs> well, when they, you know, when they went bust there, then they'd come crawling back to the railroad. Well, you know, with, with the government subsidies hanging in the balance, you know, the more track you laid, the more money you got, 
Um, obviously, the Big Four didn't want to dink around with, uh, you know, with guys that were going to show up every two weeks and you know work for a little bit and then leave. Well, they, they, they were just saving enough to buy a shovel and a pickaxe, and so they could <laughs> head out it. into the mountains. And and whiskey. And whiskey, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, and don't forget, yes. And whiskey, you know. <laughs> so you know, they, the the uh, the Central Pacific um, uh, Crocker, who was in charge of construction, um, pushed to, to have Chinese uh, put onto the workforce. Um, James Strobridge, who actually was the construction boss, um, vehemently refused to uh, have Chinese under his. Uh, control under his command there on the workforce. You know, th- these were these were little slights of of men, you know, four foot something, um, you know, slightly over a hundred hundred pounds something, um, you know, and then let alone, geez, they didn't look like the rest of us. Oh my gal. Well, they tried a few to begin with. I think the number was about fifty or a hundred of them, and they actually outperformed. Um, the Irishman and the the other Caucasian workers. And Crocker basically went to Strowbridge and said, guess what, we're getting Chinese. And then they began, you know, there there were people who, there were, if you will, importers, human traffickers, if you will, that were offering passage here to the U.S. for the Chinese, um, if you were on a steamship coming across, you were probably in some pretty miserable conditions for about four to six weeks. Um, if you were on a sailboat, you might be in some pretty miserable conditions for about four months coming across. Um, when you got here to the U.S., California California had any uh, number of laws enacted um, to discriminate against uh, the Chinese, um, you know, such things as if, um, uh, if, if, a, if a Chinaman had something stolen, um, and the case went to court, um, another Chinese could not testify in a white man's court on his behalf. Uh, the Chinese coming into San Francisco had to pay a police tax uh, in theory, to support the police, to offer them protection. However, it was found in a lot of cases that it was the police that was inciting uh, violence against the Chinese or, in fact, in some cases, uh, beating them up themselves. So, yeah, they, they weren't, uh, the, the Chinese didn't have a really warm welcome here, but did they Boy, see they, the railroad they, as almost an escape from that at all? Like, I'm going to get out here, I'm going to go on the railroad and just get away from the city and all of this garbage that's well, going on? Well, a, a lot of it was more so, um, a lot of them initially came over with gold rush fever. They wanted to mine gold. However, again, the California laws prohibited them. Um, a Chinaman could not, um, could not file a claim for land. Um, when the mother load was discovered... Um, Chinamen were not allowed to work the mother load proper. Um, they could only work the mine tailings. So eventually, eventually what it became was, hey, look, I'm a Chinaman. I'm here. I owe some money for my passage over, which, you know, at the time was anywhere from, say, 25 to 45 bucks, a lot of money. Um, I got I to gotta work somewhere. Well, here's this, here's this railroad that's offering this steady 
uh, steady work, okay, let's sign on there and, and, you know, do the job. So what were the conditions like? What are these guys doing as they're building well, this railroad? They got to go through the mountains and they got to lay railroad yep. ties? Is it that simple? Yep. Over, well, overall, but, uh, big picture, um, both work crews generally worked from spring when the ground thawed out. So, um, you know, California early as March, April, um, you know, in the, the Middle West, in, the, in Wyoming, might be April, May before they get going. They're going to work through until the ground freezes. Um, that got a little bit loose at the end. They were laying track on frozen ground uh, in 1869. Um, so you're working basically free or thought of freeze. You're going to work six days a week. Um, you're going to work sunrise to sunset. Toward the end, there were some crews that were, were had big bonfires built, and they were working by, by firelight. All right. Um, over on the Union Pacific side, you're you're getting provided um, your your board. You're getting a place to stay. The Union Pacific had three-story high bunk cars that they moved along in the work train um, toward end of track. Uh, the Central Pacific side, the Chinese, or the coolies as they called them, uh, basically stayed in small tents uh, as they, they progressed along. Um, that sounds hey, better than being in that car. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, personally, yeah, I think I would have gone for the tent. Those, yeah, those bunk cars were, were just like ovens in a lot of cases. Um, pay, well, there's a number of jobs. The first, first off, the, the track laying crew is going to be stretched out um, anywhere between 40 and 60 miles, all right? Um, the first guys out there are the final surveyors. They're actually marking the, you know, here's exactly where we want the track to go. Um, the next crew through is going to be um, the masons and the earth graders. Um, they're putting in the culverts, putting in the bridges, doing the tunnels. They're grading out the roadbed. Most of those earth workers are getting about two bucks a day. Um, next, next crew through is going to be the tie gang and you're going to be laying down ties on the finished roadbed. Um, you're putting to, if, if the railroad has the ties and is doing good, um, you're putting down a tie about every two feet. Uh, that got stretched out sometimes to three and four feet as things got tight. Um, you know, for chucking lumber, you're getting paid eh, about two, two fifty a day in some cases. Um, the iron men, are coming through next. They're the guys that are actually putting uh, the rails down onto the ties. And um, are they manually the doing this? I mean, are they? They're doing this. Yes. Okay. This is all done manually. Um, and and John Henry at... says his hammer was 14 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of hammers were these guys really using? Because well, I, I, I don't even think I could swing a 14 pound hammer. <laughs> then again, there was no tall tales written about me. But no, it seems well, like not, yet. not yet. Come on, yeah. No. <laughs> and and hang on. Hang on to the hammers for just a second, because the, the rail, the sticks of rail, yep. um, we got sticks of rail that are, are coming um, between 29 and 39 feet, and each stick of rail is weighing in eh, 750, 850 pounds, wow. and you're, you're unloading these off a flat car and moving them into place. By um, hand. For There's th just dudes picking these things up. Yeah, by hand. You're getting paid about uh, 253 bucks a day for that. Now, the spikers. Last group through. Um, the spike malls they're using are 
um, about 10 to 12 pound spike malls. And a good spiker will take three swings to drive in a spike. You're looking at um, laying a mile of track every day. So by the time you do the math on all of this. I was this, just going to say, how many, how many spikes is that? <laughs> well, let, let's go for how many times you're going to swing your spike mall. Yeah. You're going to swing your spike mall 12 to 15,000 times a day. Oh. And for that, you're going to get $3.50. Imagine coming back with that physique. You come back into San Francisco. <laughs> well, you're assuming you're well fed. <laughs> although I, I, although I might be either a four foot tall Chinaman or a or an Irishman, maybe I don't know if that's going to work out for me or not. But I'm just imagining I would just be like, "What's where, which way is the gym? And be like, Where's the beach? I mean, you would be ripped. It would be great <laughs> if you weren't yeah, malnourished." I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and now food. You know, most that and that, that was one thing that the the both sides did pay attention to. You know, if if the crew is if if you're going to have a crew work, you got to have them fed. They got to have their well energy fed. up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, over on the Union Pacific side, yes, the guys are paying a minimal amount for their food, but they're being provided a meal of. Uh, uh, beef, buffalo, beans, potatoes, black bread. So not bad um, at all. I mean, coffee. No, for mm-hmm. the time, no. You know, the Chinese, um, the Chinese, the pay structure is a little more discriminatory, but, um, you know, they've got out of their, their pods, as they call them, um, every pod had a cook, and, you know, the Chinese are eating incredibly well, um, you know, considering that they're working in the mountains and moving across in the Nevada desert, um, they're actually eating better food, healthier food, uh, than what the, you know, the Irishmen are at the time. So, you know, food, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it was, it was one of the things that everybody knew if, if we want these guys to work, man, we got to feed them. We got to right. make sure they're, they're, they're fed. So tell me a little bit about these hell on wheels towns that I hear about. Uh, <laughs> were they like this last albeit deep grasp of grasp of the of the west that we idolize on television where there's two guys standing in the middle of the thing ready to shoot each other <laughs> and one of them may or may not have like the top of a stove shoved in his jacket to make a bulletproof yeah. back to the future but i'm just what is the what was this like they had i mean they were little towns right they had dentists hardware stores saloons prostitutes everything a guy could need that didn't need any food because he already had like a, a bunch of beef and, and and bread but what were these towns well Okay, you know, you, you, you referenced the, the TV show. Um, hey, it was a great TV show. It was a great <laughs> I have TV yet to see show. it. Okay. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's... Here's, here's kind of the deal. Imagine that you are uh, a young man in your 20s. Sounds great so you, far. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. I'm in the best shape of my yeah. life. Sounds good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, you're you're ripped from either yep. you know lifting lifting rail or or ties or pounding spikes. All right. Yeah. You're good. you're basically out in and uh, and hell on wheels. Also, mind you, this was more so on the Union Pacific than on the Central Pacific. Okay. You're you're out in the middle of nowhere. All right. Um, you know the the last town that you went through is say 25 miles back. And before the railroad got there, there was no town there. All right. right. So, <laughs> you know, so there, there for you is like, man, I ain't nowhere. All right. <laughs> so, 
So far, you so good. You've got me. I'm on the hook. I'm young. I'm exploring. I'm ripped. I'm ready to go. Oh, hang on. I got to throw in one other thing. You're getting paid. Yes. Oh, true. Yeah. You got you got money in your pocket, and you know what? Here in the middle of nowhere, you got nowhere to spend that money. This sounds a lot like the uh, the fracking in the oil places that popped up in the Dakota. Oh, yeah, just in the last... Where all of a sudden there would just be a bunch of trailers that they'd put up out of nowhere for guys to go sleep in. And lo and behold, there, there was also a trailer full of, that was essentially a strip club. That was like a hundred yards down a temporary strip club where the girls would come all from Chicago, Milwaukee and, and Texas and New York. All the strippers would go out there and make a ton of money because you got a bunch of dudes. A bored guy. Good money. Guys that are, those riggers are just as ripped as these dudes with hammers and they had nothing to spend the money on. Gentlemen, gentlemen, you have just borne out the fact that history does in fact repeat itself. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, there's the, there's the scenario. So in the typical American fashion of, hey, let's tra- this other, you got money, man. I want to find some way to get that money from you. So what happens? These temporary towns get set up, and are they run by the railroad or are they just privateers no, that just kind of follow around? Privateers, yeah, okay, they're they're okay. camp mm-hmm. followers. They're camp followers, and you know it, it was you you look at you see pictures of these. And it's it's a it's a false front with a great big tent behind it, all right. And they spring up overnight, and they can disappear just about as quickly. And they were all with always within a you know horse ride or a walking distance of wherever the rail camp was at the time. Yeah, dance hall, saloon, gambling, prostitution. Yeah, the dentistry there. Uh, <laughs> what about a church? Was there a church? You know, um, did they bring a church? Was there like the? T- not, no, I'm, I'm not, not high on priority well, list. I'm, I'm not thinking. talking like a bell in the thing. But was there like a guy that was like, "I'm going to save all these sinners"? Because every yeah. institution you mentioned, I'm sure it's yeah. all it's all sinful, right? In terms of, yeah. especially like think of the eight, 19th century. This is a very traditional time, you right? Know, God mm-hmm. is God, you have God and guns. It, it, that's all there is. And, uh, and meanwhile, you have Las Vegas light yeah. on wheels. <laughs> <laughs> you, you put it. You, you got it exactly. And this, and you know, every time that the railroad, the end of track, moved far enough that the workers could not get back to the local Hell on Wheels establishment, well, then the establishment was collapsed. And oh, wait a minute. Here's the railroad uh, first customer. These. These people, the proprietors in Hell on Wheels, would load their their buildings and their goods onto trains, uh, paying customers, and the railroad would move them on to the next uh, next location. So you have right? these saloons full of full of liquor, and then you've got the the brothel or the whorehouse full of madams yep. with all their their women underneath them. I yep. mean, as a twenty year old guy in eighteen sixty, you've got women. Booze, money, and food. Hey, you yeah. don't need anything else. <laughs> bingo, bingo, bingo. One of the worst, one of the worst uh, Hell on Wheels towns was Julesburg, Colorado. Um, when you trace the map of the Transcontinental Railroad on the Union Pacific side, um, there's just one little dip that the Union Pacific made into uh, very northeast Colorado, um, and the town there was Julesburg. Um, the town still exists today. It's a, it's one of the few Hell on Wheels locations that actually survived. Um, it was 
uh, I mean, it, it was lawless. You know, there, there was bodies in the street literally every night. Um, when the town had moved or when the railroad had moved on far enough, obviously packed up, the next big, next big stopping point was Cheyenne, Wyoming. And in fact, it was reported in the local paper that, um, you know, after the railroad got there and had begun to establish their division point and everything else, one of the first trains in was all the parts and pieces of Julesburg. And somebody was heard to remark, hey, folks, look at this train. Here comes Julesburg. <laughs> and, you know, there was there was hell on wheels, uh, you know, coming coming along. So. The other, the other thing it you just sounds like of, you're just going to get shot if you walk out of the saloon with your hat on sideways. They're just going to, that's just the was, end of you. Well, it, it was, it was, you know, it was uh, vigilante law, if you will. Um, in fact, you, you look, you look further down the line. Um, after Cheyenne, the next big town was Laramie, Wyoming. Laramie was was so lawless um, to begin with that at one point. Um, between some of the railroad, the local railroad officials and some of the local, uh, the very first uh, municipal officials, they, they basically said, okay, we've had enough. And they rounded up, um, I believe it was three or four of the better known uh, criminals, the outlaws in town, and they hung them um, on the depot platform and then just left the bodies hang as a message to anybody coming into town that, guess what, Laramie, Wyoming now has a civic code um, that you're now going to need to follow. Otherwise, here's, here's your end. It seems like it was the, the peak of the lawless West, but it was like just a flash in the pan with the building of the railroad, and after that it was kind of it, huh? Yeah, there were, you know, I mean, here again, the railroad is, is bringing civilization. You know, you mentioned religion. Um, and the railroad played a role in bringing religion to the West as well. Many of the the predominant faiths in the country, the uh, the Catholics, the Episcopalians, the uh, the Baptists, um, eventually had what were called chapel cars. Um, they were railroad cars that were, were that were basically a church. Um, some of them were, were magnificent. I mean, uh, stained glass. Uh, pump organs, incredible woodwork, and these cars would move throughout the West to serve as a a church in a new town, um, you know, or to uh, be planted somewhere until a church could actually, a physical church could actually be built. Now, mind you, this this starts um, probably 15 to 20 years after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, but Nonetheless, you know, it's that, uh, okay, we've established the code of law. Now we need to bring some religion in as well to kind of cement all this in place. So what were some of the logistical and physical challenges that came up when you're, when you're building a railroad at this time? And obviously you're like, you come into a mountain and then go, that's a a challenge for sure. (laughs) Maybe we can talk a little bit about how nitroglycerin was, was brought in and gotten rid of right away. I mean, there's, there's a lot of challenges that these guys had to deal with. Yeah. Well, and actually the nitroglycerin that, well, uh, nitroglycerin actually was used. um, The central Pacific actually did have their own lab to make it um, up in the, uh, the Sierra Nevada's. 
Um, but you're right. They that was man, that was some nasty, nasty stuff to play with until they uh, they learned how to to use it. Well, yeah, they um, blew up ships. Like some guy was just yeah. opening the container to find out with why a it was, chisel. With a chisel. <laughs> oh, it's leaking. Yeah. Tap tap yeah. tap. Boom! Blows himself so, up in an entire well, Wells Fargo building. Gone. Yeah. That was the, the yeah the Wells Fargo building there in San Francisco went that way. Um, the the one port on the uh, the east coast of Panama um, went that way. And I mean it was when that explosion happened. There was enough of it there. There was, I mean there was nothing. There was jungle, and then there was flatland, and then there was water. I mean that was it. <laughs> Poof, gone. Yeah. Um, some of the things that they encountered along the way, um, the Union Pacific, they're building basically through the middle of the country. Um, so they need to be bringing everything from uh, from the east. So all their their rail is coming from the east. Uh, you know, Nebraska. Where's Nebraska the rail, side at, note, Where's the rail made? Duluth. I mean, there was a lot of steel uh, there at the time. No, that... we're we're uh, no. At the time, we're looking um, Pennsylvania, New York. Okay, okay, okay. Sure. okay? Yep. Um, Duluth isn't even a, a, a even place a on the yeah, map. <laughs> that's not even a glimmer in, in yeah, the eyes. You know, at that point. it's it's a trading post here. You know, right. Um, the uh, uh, railroad ties, Central Pacific, no problem. We've got plenty of forests there in California. Um, Union Pacific, hey, there's no trees in Nebraska. Right. Okay. <laughs> so we've, you know, the Union Pacific is having to get uh, ties from, um, you know, up in the Dakotas, um, from Minnesota, and then you know having them transported to the Missouri River and floated and then brought by train. Um, the the uh, tunneling tunneling was a huge issue, um, and this especially for the Central Pacific. Unless John um, Henry was there, because he would. I mean, yeah. that was no problem. <laughs> he he, he was pretty, he's yeah. better than a steam engine. <laughs> exactly. You know exactly. Um, the Union Pacific bored something like only like three or four tunnels across their entire route. Um, the Central Pacific before they got out of Donner or got out of the the Sierras had put in like over 20 tunnels, um, and they're going through granite. I suppose they don't even know what kind of material they're going to encounter in some of these things. They're just like, oh, well, no. shit, it's granite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, hey, it, it's, it's harder than all. So you've got, you know, you got one Chinaman standing there holding a, uh, a drill rod that's about three, four feet long, and you've got another one that is banging on this thing, and after every stroke, you know, the, the first one turns it a little bit to change the position of the blades in the hole, and you're, you know, you're looking to bore in a hole about a foot deep to pack it with, you know, powder or nitroglycerin, and if you get one of these holes done in a day, man, that's, that's a huge accomplishment. Um, the, the summit tunnel through through Donner Pass, over the Sierra Nevadas. At one point, um, the, the Central Pacific was actually boring on um, four faces at once. And you're going, how can, you, how, can you, how can they be doing this? They had a face going from the west to the east. They had another face going east to west. And then they bored a shaft vertically down to where the center of the tunnel was and started digging out from there. Oh, my wow. God. Wow. Okay? Now, they're bored. Th- Do we know how this- deep this shaft is? I'm curious, the, the vertical. Uh, it was several hundred feet. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, you thank know, you. The, and, <laughs> okay. And the, yeah. 
Well, they, hey, it gets better. Hold on. Just wait. <laughs> There's more. You know, this, this tunnel is the, it's the, it's the, it's the blockade. It is the linchpin of getting across the mountains, all right? So the work on this thing continues literally uh, year-round until they have it bored out. That means they're working during the Sierra Nevada winter, all right? Sierra Nevada's Donner Pass, in 24 hours, you can get a snowfall of 8, 10, 12 feet, wow. all right? So, so the Chinamen not only have the tunnel. Well, it's taller than they are, that's for sure. Yeah. It's a lot exactly. of snow. <laughs> you know, you, the, the Chinamen have got the, the tunnel itself that they're working on, but then they have tunnels in the snow that they have dug out where they're dumping the tailings to get to their camps. Um, you know, they've got ventilation tunnels through the snow to provide them with uh, you know, with oxygen, with, with breathing air during this process. You know, so there's some of these guys that during, you know, during the winter months, they never saw the outside world. Wow. And I you suppose know, if anything fact, happened to these guys, they just bury them at the beginning of the tunnel. Um, there was a number of cases, or at least a couple of big ones, where there was avalanches that wiped out some of this snow tunnel structure. And it just went over the side and Goodbye. get me the ne- get yeah get me the next batch of Chinamen exactly wow exactly so um, you know you've got uh, you know going across the the desert there in in Nevada um, obviously you've got some you know heat concerns um, yeah there was you know there was the logistical the logistical dance that was done to make this happen. Um, was incredible. Uh, in fact, that is that's one of the things why Jack and Dan Casement did so well for the Union Pacific. Um, they came out of supply from the U.S. Army during the Civil War, and they were able to organize the Union Pacific into basically a machine as far as how things moved up, how things were ordered, when they were to arrive, um, so on and so forth. It was from How long that did this standpoint, section pretty, of tunnel take to build that you're talking about. The uh, the summit tunnel took over a year to bore. Mm, wow. Uh, <laughs> summit tunnel took over a year to bore there on on Donner Pass. And they had uh, steam drills and st- why were why were they doing this by hand? Was there anything at the time that existed for technology that, no. that would have sped this up, or was that pre did that predate? That was, yeah, that was they were that was the state of the art. The, the, the state biggest, of the art the was biggest, a guy with a four foot drill and another dude hammering. <laughs> That's exactly. the state of the art. That's the, yep. The height of technology for the time was when they did have, when they got that, um, the, the vertical shaft to be working on the two center faces, um, they did bring up a steam engine to power a wench to get, um, the tailings out of that, those two middle faces. But otherwise, yeah, it was, it was hammered out by hand. Wow. I mean, th- we're talking about the same technology that the Egyptians used to, to move rock. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, yep. it's wild to think of the, the place and time that this existed where, where men are dying there, you know, for this, mm-hmm. for this progress, using everything that was done for this, essentially, other than getting the materials there, was done with muscle, right? Mm-hmm. And everything yep. that was done after this time was all done with machines. 
Like this this brief period of time, this transition True. into the early 20th century, into the, the, the late 19th century was this transition from everything was done with muscle power, whether it's an ox or a human being with the leverage at their elbow and their shoulders. And then all of a sudden, everything was a machine after that. You know, when you, you look at the look at the Transcontinental Railroad, and like you just said, all muscle power, and then you look at really one of the next greatest, uh, almost impossible technological feats for the from the era, you know, the Panama Canal. By then, we've got steam shovels. Right. Hmm. You know? So yeah. this is almost <laughs> the last, in at least in America, this is the last human uh, engineering struggle where it was just men doing something. The, yeah, the absolute, you know, yeah, beyond that, you know, we're looking, you think of all the other big things, you think of the dam building in the West, you think of the skyscrapers, um, you know, we're into, we're into technology at that point. You even think about, well, even start to look at the technology that the railroads use by the time we got to some of the biggest uh, steam locomotives, uh, the technology that was being used to, to manufacture those was far beyond um, but I, I think the other, the more amazing thing is how quickly we were able to develop the, the technology. Um, you know, we're, we're, talking, we're talking less than 100 years um, from the Union Pacific going from relatively small steam locomotives um, to having their 4884 big boys that were amongst the largest uh, in the world, you know, we're talking about going from a few hundred horsepower up to several thousand horsepower, and not even to mention it, the amount of torque we're developing. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and exactly, and we're doing it in less than a, in a century, and yet these huge locomotives are ultimately plying a line that, in many cases, originally was built on the backs of you know Irish immigrants or on the other side on the back of. Uh, you know, Chinese labor. Just incredible when you think about it. Is any of that line still there? Is there any I was rail curious. Are is... any of the rails original? No, no. The original, the original rail has all been replaced. Um, the uh, location of uh, the line in many cases um, is very close to, if not uh, still the original grade, uh, a lot of it has been replaced and realigned over the years. Um, but, you know, when you look at it, um, uh, quick aside, rail is measured by the weight of a three-foot section. Most of the rail that was being laid on the original Transcontinental Railroad um, was about uh, 50 to 60-pound rail. Um, the rail that's out there today, say, on the Union Pacific's uh, main line across Nebraska and Wyoming is uh, 133 pound rail. If That's not much more. more serious. Yes. Yeah. It's you know well, uh, and you also got to think about this too. Uh, transcontinental time, a train probably weighed big train probably weighed um, maybe a hundred tons. Maybe you know today they're they're running trains out west there that can. Uh, can ding in at uh, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand tons. Oh my God! Wow, okay. yeah. that's yeah. a significant so. difference. <laughs> yeah. So, Bob, I yes. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This well, has been, been unbelievable. I've been interested in all of it. It's it's such a fascinating part of American 
uh, American history that I it think really um, is. gets overlooked sometimes. Uh, where can people find out about uh, about the museum, the National Railroad Museum? National Railroad Museum. Check us out um, at our website, nationalrrmuseum.org. Um, if you go on Facebook, just uh, search for National Railroad Museum. Um, both both places, uh, great resources about what you can see by us. Um, What's the coolest our... thing you have? Like, if I, what is like <laughs> the, what is if, if I had to go to the National Railroad Museum and see one thing, what it what it, what is it that I'm going to see there? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and I'm gonna split it between two things here. Okay, okay? we'll allow it. We, we have um, we have a portion of General Dwight D. Eisenhower's World War II command train, and we have one of the locomotives um, that pulled the command train. Um, that uh, I tell you what I, I've been working at the museum for going on 22 years. Um, every day when I walk by that car or, or those cars, and when we have it open, it just you, you got to stop, and it's just like oh my god. When you think about what went on in these cars and how it, it brought an end to World War II and how it affects global history, it's like, oh, oh little goosebumps, you know? Right, right. Um, so that, that's a big one. The other one, uh, and I referenced it just a minute ago, um, the Union Pacific did have a, a, a class of locomotives that they called big boys. Um, they were amongst the largest in the world. They measure... Um, they measure about 133 feet long. They weigh in a little over 600 tons. Um, they were used for <laughs> how much water do those things need? Um, the tender carries 24,000 gallons. <laughs> wow! In in one hour, in one hour, a big boy can turn 20,000 gallons into steam. Um, it's it's just it's a massive machine. There was 25 built. There's eight of them left. We have one um, at the National Railroad Museum, uh, and and just to just to go stand there and look at that thing, and go, oh my God, um, this thing could travel at 80 miles an hour, and it could pull like four to five thousand tons. Uh, just you know, wow. So those those are probably the two coolest biggest things. But let's, hold on, let's say, hypothesize for a second. <laughs> let's say we've got a straight track. And we've got this, and we've got this big boy here. What is, and like, we have this time machine. And we, and, and we don't care if we're going to blow it up, right? Let's, let's get that boiler going. Let's, let's, let's get the fire on, right? What do you think that thing is really capable of? <laughs> Top speed, uh, balls to the wall. Let's run it hot. What, are we, what do you think okay. that thing's capable of? They, they, did, they actually did tests like that. Um, oh, I would have loved not, to have seen that. Oh mm-hmm. my God! Not not quite not quite as wild here, but um, they were tested. They were tested, and they got them up to eighty miles an hour. That's incredible. It really they is. Got that... to, yeah, they got them up to eighty miles an hour. the the bigger The bigger thing, the bigger, the more impressive test was. Um, they were originally designed to work eastward out of Ogden, Utah to Green River, Wyoming, through the Wasatch Mountains, okay? The tests that they did in, uh, let's see, 1943 um, with Big Boy versus diesel locomotives, um, the Big Boys pretty much blew the new diesels away. They they literally, for the time, ran up um, the Wasatch Mountains. The, the, the results, when you look at the numbers from those tests, it's just like, holy cow, 
this big machine just did that? Really? Seriously? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm definitely going to have to make a trip out there. See, you're not that far away from me. Once, uh, I think maybe next spring, summer, Jake and I will come out. That would be amazing. Take a look at some trains. That'd be fantastic. That'd be great. So, yeah, check out the website. Check out Facebook. We're on Instagram as well. Um, we'll share uh, all that want... stuff. We'll find it and share yeah. it. If everybody's looking for that, it's in the show notes. Just hit the details on the podcast. You can go check their check their stuff out. Fantastic. Bob, I think we could talk to you for hours know, and hours on end. I have so many more questions, but I think for the sake of brevity, we got to keep it uh, yeah. keep it right where it is. Yes, and hey, and today hey. is my birthday, and I couldn't think of a, a better way to spend it than doing this. This is oh. awesome. It was it was really enjoyable. Thank you. Happy birthday! Glad I could help. Anytime you guys want to chat trains, let me know. And you know, I, I think I, I give you guys credit. The the ground that we have covered here. Um, I was telling Chris uh, as we were setting this up, um, you know, we've done programs on this at the museum that uh, the program lasts, you know, for a, a month. And I, I think here tonight we've we've covered significant territory and cool. yeah, done it done it in a pretty darn cool way too. I mean. Yeah, Durant's a scoundrel. Be able to call him that's cooler. Yeah. <laughs> a spade's a spade. I almost just wish someone like would think I was a scoundrel. Just like a, maybe a little. You bit. just want to be notorious. Yes, if I could be notorious, <laughs> that would be great. All right, Bob, thanks so much for hanging out with us. We really appreciate it. All right. Take care of yourself. Will do. All right, bye. bye-bye. That was awesome. Oh, my God. I so seriously much. could just keep talking to Bob forever. I, know. I, know. I have so I, many more questions. I know. I, I, I really wish I could find the Bob of almost anything I want to learn about. <laughs> yeah. Because he is. Maybe that's our new term. We, hey, we need to find a Bob. We need for, to find the Bob. We yes. need to find a Bob for the highway. So we need to find the Bob of Boeing. Or just, yeah. you know what I mean? It's yeah. Like we need the, the Bob. It's now the, yeah, it is now a point of reference. Yes. It is now a point of reference that we need to find the Bob of. So many thanks like to Bob. It. I, it was a really, really great conversation. And it, everything I wanted to know, he knew. And it was really, really cool. And I, I really think this was a special time in America. Like I said, it's this a good was, point. It was this, this, just this. Little and transition. I've never, I've never heard that. The fact that everything before this is muscle. Yep. And then everything after it is machine. Yes. And this is, this, this was the last great, if you think of all the human achievements, all the seven wonders of the world. All built by hand, right? You think of the mm-hmm. Great Pyramids. You think of all this stuff that was done by hand. This was one of those things. You're this, right. This railroad, this it w- was a monumental human achievement. And there was obviously corruption and sacrifice and death. But over the course of human history, that has always been the case. Yeah. You know, you cannot, you can't necessarily, and just, and it probably still happens today, but it's kind of it hasn't been written about in history and, books yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's interesting is I kind of talked about it a little bit is what's left for humanity to do, right? Where what is yeah. our unknown other than space? And that's one of the reasons why I have a lot of respect for what Elon Musk is doing and the right. envelope that he's pushing is because you know what are they space the, the final, final frontier, frontier. <laughs> right? It's the Star Trek thing. <laughs> it really it truly is is the final frontier. It's the last thing left. But this was something that. Anyone that had the grit could go and explore and do it. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go make my stake. I'm going to go stake, put my stake in the ground, and I'm going to make something of myself. 
And there will never, in the course of human history, until we have a societal collapse in, yeah, I don't know, about seven, <laughs> seven minutes where the whole world's on fire and everybody starves to death and everybody's driving around in Volkswagen rabbits because that's the only thing that's still going to run. Um, <laughs> it's never going to happen again. It's, yeah. it's, we're never going to have, even if we have a complete societal collapse, everything's gone. You're still walking across I-90, right? <laughs> Everybody's seen The Walking Dead where they're just, you know, they're just walking along on the road. I mean, that's going to be there forever. And this was very, very special. And thanks to Bob for helping us explain why it truly Yeah, it, it was a frontier for sure. All right, guys. That's a wrap for this week. Uh, we'll see you on Friday with uh, with a news episode. We're back on schedule on Friday. That's right. And uh, holidays are over, so everybody can you know get back to doing the things. Back on our schedule. Get. And then uh, we'll have we're gonna have one more episode on. Yes, this we will. Where we talk about the the technology, the technology, which is really really exciting too. I really look forward to that. Uh, on that note, we will see you guys on Friday. Take care.